Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Welcome, everyone, to another Vive podcast by WCAPS, Women of Color for Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Kara Hernandez, and I'm the chair of the Illicit Trafficking Working Group for WCAPS. And I'm really excited to sit down with my guest today, Dr. Donna Patterson. She is the chair of the Department of History, Political Science, Philosophy, and the director of Africana Studies at Delaware State University. She specializes in African and African diaspora studies with an interest in global health, African studies, drug markets, and gender. She is also the author of Pharmacy in Senegal, Gender, Healing, and Entrepreneurship. Dr. Patterson, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. I'm so happy to be here. Well, right now, I know you're working on lots of things during this pandemic. And two of the projects I know you're working on, it, one is called Drug Trafficking, Drug Consumption, and Health in Africa. And the second book I believe you're working on is Ebola, West Africa, and the World. So from hearing these different projects, you know, they seem kind of in their own little world. But is there actually a relationship between illegal trafficking of pharmaceuticals and pandemic? Thank you. Yes, I am working on these two projects. Uh, and there are some intersections between pharmaceutical trafficking and pandemics and, and also the trafficking of other therapeutics, if you will. Uh, for instance, whenever there's an outbreak, be it a new strain of the flu, measles, Ebola, COVID-19, people often respond both with prescribed and self-medication in much of the world. And I think if you, you, know, if you go back and you look at Tamiflu, uh, for instance, in the use of Tamiflu, when there was an, a swine flu outbreak some years back. So there was a lot of Tamiflu flu cells, both those that were prescribed and picked up at various pharmacies, but also those, a lot of online purchases, if you will. And so uh, when you're get, starting to get into online purchases, some of that is for more formal networks, but, but so, so there can be both a formal and informal use of these drugs. Another example is Ebola. When you had the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the t- people uh, often think of it as a 2014 Ebola outbreak. It actually begins in 2013, it ends in 2016. One of the things that we saw in West Africa during this Ebola outbreak that happened is that there was this trade in blood, blood from patients who had survived Ebola. And in COVID, COVID-19, we see this manifesting in the form often of plasma do- donations, you know, for antibodies and this sort of thing. Now, if you think about this, uh, when you're thinking about it in the West African context, it was considered informal. Blood was often used from neighbors or relatives. And when you think about it now in in this, how it manifests with COVID-19, people often think of it as formal with plasma or or, or the use of uh, serum. And so the plasma in terms of donations for antibodies, serums that will use blood and plasma for the same sorts of things and they are distributed in clinics and hospitals. So I think that's something very important to think about too in terms of what's used, because the blood is still used in some form, um, but how it's used and how it's considered, you know, in terms of how it's being distributed. Also, I think too, as as we think about COVID-19, it's a bit early uh, for sure. There's no vaccine in circulation. There are some in phase three, 
Uh, some of them are going to trial, but there are none in circulation. So we don't know quite what that will look like in terms of any potential trafficking. But there has been some trafficking in some of the therapeutics, particularly uh, the use of hydro hydroxychloroquine, both trafficking, but also a lot of hoarding. So in a lot of Western countries, for instance, uh, the U.S. is one example where you've seen hoarding where it's been used and kind of moved towards treatment for uh, COVID-19 or some sort of uh, attempted treatment, I should say, for COVID-19. But this, at the same time, is similar in terms of trafficking, and it has disrupted formal distribution channels for those who regularly, in need, regularly use and need hydroxychloroquine for other things, such as lupus and such as other things that people regularly use it for. And so those people are not necessarily getting the treatment they need because now it's been redirected, if you will. And a lot of studies have shown that it is not necessarily that effective treating COVID. So it's very interesting how that has been shifted in this way. No, I think that actually is really fascinating to think about the issues with also, you know, with you have hoarding of these drugs and or supposed treatments for COVID. And you also then get into the power dynamics and the no negotiations of pharma pharmaceutical trading, but also trafficking. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, specifically looking at like Francophone Africa, why is it important to consider the historical and political no negotiations around, better said, of the pharmaceutical trafficking and trading in Francophone Africa? Okay, I think too, because I think now, you know, most of the discussion about health and global health is about COVID-19. So I'll, I'll, I'll bring it here, but I, I don't intend to bring it in further. I, I think just as people are seeing that COVID-19 is illuminating that public health doesn't exist in a silo, what's happening in Francophone Africa, both historically and presently, also doesn't exist in a silo. We definitely saw that with Ebola and, and you know, the Ebola, the 2014 Ebola epidemic and how it didn't just remain in Africa, but it spread out. It spread out not just from those three hardest hit countries into other countries in the region, but it also spread and we saw that some people were infected and there was some transmission both in the U.S. and different European countries for, and in different European countries, for, for instance. And so global health doesn't exist in a silo. In terms of pharma, pharmaceutical trafficking uh, and the history of uh, pharmaceutical trafficking in Francophone Africa, in terms of my work, I've centered it kind of around French West Africa, particularly Senegal, other countries in French West Africa. But even within those countries, we see that things did not exist in a silo, that there was a lot of transnational negotiations, uh, interventions, if you will. For instance, if we look at the history, for instance, um, in particular uh, in, in French West Africa, in Senegal and in the surrounding areas, some of the first people who actually trafficked pharmaceuticals, in fact, most of the people who trafficked pharmaceuticals definitely during the colonial period, starting from at least the 1940s, were French. They tended to be uh, French citizens, uh, primarily French pharmacists, for instance. And the trafficking, it looked differently then in terms of what you were trafficking, uh, but they were trafficking pharmaceuticals. Uh, and in and, and, and writing my book, Pharmacy in Senegal, and looking at the archives, I look at what pharmacists were cited, who, who was cited for trafficking, what were they trafficking, um, and those sorts of things. So the trade was as, was primarily dominated, as I said, by uh, French nationals who were living um, um, French West Africa. And French West Africa includes Senegal and 
Cote d'Ivoire and Mali and a number of other uh, countries. In addition, one of the things that I uncovered was some of that there were a few prominent African traders during that period, uh, not many. Two of the more prominent ones were uh, one from Cote d'Ivoire uh, and another one uh, from Benin. And in their work, um, they did some trade that transcended French West Africa and also included Nigeria and the Gambia, which are two Anglophone. They were colonized both by the, by the British. And so they were both um, you know, Anglophone and there still are Anglophone in terms of um, administrative language. But of course, they're independent states as the Senegal. And so, so in terms of historically, um, that's what trade often looked like. And so I think it, it, it definitely underscores those intersections of things not existing in a silo and being uh, transnational. For instance, uh, one of the, well, two, two examples in terms of those uh, French nationals who were trading, of course, they were trading heavily and working heavily with people in France. Uh, most of the drugs that came to uh, French West Africa, of course, were almost all of them. I'd say at this point, historically, 98% of them, you know, were, came from France originally. And so it was more of a matter of networks. Are you distributing them in formal networks, informal networks, or you, are you distributing a drug that you're using as a therapeutic that has not been approved for a therapeutic? So this is what this looked like uh, historically at this time. And so the networks were kind of France to the colony directly. Now, when you think about uh, two of the more prominent African traders, one African trader from, from Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, for instance, he uh, used uh, some of his networks with some of these French pharmacists, um, but also expanded um, and also uh, was able to work in these ways. And so he traded uh, both with Cote d'Ivoire and Benin and Nigeria in particular in, in West Africa. Now, what this looks like in the, the post-colonial era, it, it really manifests in a different way, particularly looking at Senegal as, a, as the center of this. And so in post-colonial Senegal, uh, the trafficking of pharmaceuticals, really the French are not involved in the ways that they were during the historical period. And now the trafficking of pharmaceuticals in Senegal is mostly definitely controlled at, within, it's, it's mostly... Pharmaceutical trafficking in Senegal now is mostly controlled actually by a, a brotherhood, a Muslim brotherhood called the Mourid, which is a local brotherhood that is a Senegal-specific brotherhood. And this a group is based in a city called Touba that is in the middle of Senegal. And so they are very prominent in this trafficking in terms of members who've invested, particularly in distribution. What, what it looks like in Senegal is very interesting because Senegal diapers in a lot of other countries, I think, that have pharmaceutical trafficking, particularly in the continent and in other parts of the world, is a lot of the drugs aren't actually counterfeit. A lot of those drugs are siphoned out of formal markets. And this group is so powerful that people don't necessarily want to mess with them and just resold in different spaces, resold in different markets or kind of uh, undersold to formal structures and that sort of thing. And all of this manifest, one of the kind of major manifestations of this in Senegal is a place called Kursarine B. And Kursarine B is a very interesting place. It is a market in Dakar, Senegal, where the primary product at this market is actually pharmaceuticals that are being sold in informal networks. That's so interesting, the, the, the history of the 
pharmaceutical trafficking. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that they're not, you know, counterfeit drugs. You, you, I think that was something that was, you know, all over the news you know, cycles ago, it feels like, but probably last sometime last year. And that was such a, a big topic. But it would be, I would be really interesting to know what is the relationship between actually the drug trafficking and drug consumption in West Africa and how greatly, greatly does it differ from one country to another? Because, you know, sometimes the supply and the demand when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs, it's a little bit different. So you can create a drug and that causes demand versus there's a demand for a drug and so therefore you supply it. I would be really interesting in, in getting some insight about that. In terms of counterfeit drugs, they are counterfeited. I mean, Nigeria is a country, for instance, that's had a, hard, a huge counterfeiting problem. And I actually was going to talk about that later, but we can talk about it a bit here. Uh, so in terms of counterfeiting of pharmaceuticals, what does that look like? You know, in Senegal, like I say, they're mostly siphoned from formal distribution networks. So they're, they're less likely to be counterfeited. There is some counterfeiting, but they're less likely to be counterfeited. Because one of the things that also happens in Senegal is that there are some pharmaceuticals that are coming from Nigeria, from the Gambia, and from kind of the, the some of the Saharan trade uh, routes into Senegal, which those uh, are not coming from uh, Senegal's formal distribution networks and more likely to be counterfeited. So in Nigeria, they have a, you know, a huge uh, problem with this, uh, with counterfeiting. And one of the things that they found, they had someone who was ahead of their, something called NAFDAC, which is a pretty much kind of equivalent, I guess, to the, similar to a USDA, I suppose, uh, in the United States, Dr. Dora uh, Akanyili, this is in Nigeria, uh, and she was someone, she's died in recent years, but while she had it NAFDAC, she really was a, a very stringent uh, person to try to, she really wanted to eliminate uh, the sale of, of kind of counterfeited and contraband drugs, because contraband, you know, just kind of siphon off more um, and that sort of thing in Nigeria. And she was quite effective, I must say. She was she didn't uh, completely eliminate it, no, but she reduced the trade quite dramatically. And in fact, she was so effective that a hit was put on her head. And one day while she was being driven in her car, I believe they were at a red light, someone tried to assassinate her, shot into the back window where she was sitting, and the bullet, they tried to shoot her in the head. They weren't the best shot. And the bullet basically grazed her scalp and got stuck in her head wrap, which shows you kind of, I think, degree of, of how successful she was. And so, so there's a mix of both counterfeited and, and those that aren't counterfeited, I guess, just to sum that up. I mean, what a great story to end <laughs> that with. What, that's so fascinating. You must be doing something, right, if, if that's what's happening to you. That's amazing. I, I guess that kind of brings me more into the illicit side of drug trafficking. I would really be interested to hearing about the relationship between illicit drug trafficking and drug consumption in West Africa, and how greatly does it differ from one country to another? Okay, yes, um, definitely illicit drug trafficking is, is definitely uh, growing, uh, both in the West African sub-region, also in other regions of the continent, South Africa, East Africa, the Horn of Africa. I think just to begin, I'll say cannabis rules. And so cannabis, as in most of the world, marijuana is the most widely consumed uh, drug. So you see this throughout 
you see it throughout the whole continent. You see it in Morocco, you see it in Senegal, you see it in the Gambia, you see it in South Africa, you see it in Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania. It's basically, you know, everywhere. And historically, it has been everywhere. And so actually, one of the things that I'm looking at in this book on, on drug trafficking, drug consumption and health in Africa, is it, is, it actually focuses on illicit drugs and not pharmaceutical drugs. And in it, I'm looking at, you know, how does this, some of this manifest historically? So I'm, I'm, I'm starting early 20th century, bringing it all the way to the present. And in that particular project, I'm focusing on Senegal and, and Cape Verde in West Africa and Ethiopia in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa. And it's very transnational because, again, these things don't exist in a silo. And so they, there are even more intersections with other countries on the continent and, and throughout the world. Because when you look at illicit trafficking, uh, the intersections go into Asia, they go into the Americas, they go, you know, into Europe and, and just basically in different parts of the world. So it's definitely even more in terms of that. But in terms of what it looks like in terms of, of consumption, definitely cannabis. You see it everywhere. In Senegal, for instance, there's a lot of cannabis, very, you know, widely available. But there's also been both kind of some history and contemporary use of, of harder drugs things such as heroin and cocaine and various pills. And then, and so those are some of the things we're seeing in Senegal in terms of consumption. In Cape Verde, there's a lot of cannabis use, also a lot of similar sorts of drugs that you see in Senegal, though I think I would say to a lesser degree generally, uh, the harder sorts of drugs. And the Horn of Africa, the drug that rules is something people call it cat, they call it chat, they call it hot, and in and, and different places along the region and going and also into the Arabian Peninsula. And it is a leaf that grows in the region that that is chewed. And that's the most widely consumed drug. Now, when you think about illicit, this one's very interesting because in most of the countries that it's consumed in, in different parts of Africa, because it's also consumed in some that aren't in the horn, it is generally legal. So it's generally legal, even though it may not always be socially acceptable, it's generally legal. And it was legal in a lot of the West up until really the last decade. It was legal in the UK until I believe it was about 2009, 2010 or so, maybe slightly later. I'd have to go back and look at the actual dates right now. And it was legal in different forms in France, some of its forms in France. And I'm thinking some of the forms may still be legal in the Netherlands. But what's happening in recent years is Countries in the West are starting to ban it and putting on a, on a list of, you know, kind of banned illicit drugs, which is very interesting. And so that's the most widely consumed in the region. Cannabis is, of course, consumed. Cannabis, tat in Ethiopia, for instance, is found everywhere. It's everywhere. Sellers are everywhere. You see signs at boutiques. So you see that one everywhere. Cannabis, too, is, is, is highly widely available, particularly in cities. And also in parts of kind of South Central Ethiopia around Hawassa and Shashamini. Shashamini is a town, it's an Ethiopian town or, or city, I guess. And part of it, part of the land in this town was given to the Rasta, the Rastafarians. And in fact, who traced their lineage to Haile Selassie, who was um, a former ruler of Ethiopia, and they grow cannabis. So they grow it to consume it because they use it for religious purposes. But of course, too, there's some distribution and sell too. And so those are the, the most widely used drugs in these particular countries, uh, for instance. But I think, I think two big things 
I didn't really talk about other regions. I mean, if you look at South Africa, for instance, you definitely have use of cannabis, but you have a much higher use, I'd say, of some of the kind of the harder illicit drugs, if you will. There's a, a huge trade of things such as heroin and cocaine that go through Kenya and Tanzania. But I think one of the interest, two interesting things to say here, in terms of African consumers, a lot of what they've consumed in terms of kind of psychoactive drugs have been more plant-based. So things such as cat or cannabis. And so Really, this consumption of the harder drugs in a lot of cases, particularly more widespread use, is new. It's, it's, it's newer, if I, if I should say, because you had certain sectors of people who may do it. Maybe someone who's elite, elite, who has a lot of money, maybe who's been to the West, who can buy cocaine because, you know, most people can't buy cocaine. And most people, you know, you know, even in a place like the U.S., it's expensive, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but also what's happening is a lot of countries are being used as transnational sites to go and distribute drugs to other countries. And so then you have more, a greater influx of these drugs that are now coming through African countries. So in different regions in particular, which is leading to some rise in consumption, for sure. So that's one of the things we're seeing. Another thing I think to think of is drug or drug treatment facilities. There aren't a lot of drug treatment facilities in a lot of the continent. They definitely vary. You see so many of them in, in the Southern African countries for sure. But in West Africa, most of drug, the drug treatment facilities look like places that are kind of community-based, religious, often religious sorts of places, places that where people may not have training and, you know, how to treat these sorts of things and often kind of using religion as a way to try to, 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 to deal with it. And so Cape Verde has one government treatment facility. The others are more community-based religious. Uh, in Senegal, similar sorts of things. And in a number of, of, of West African countries, for instance, you don't even see any sort of formal treatment facilities. And you, don't not, you do not see Trump formal treatment facilities in, a, in many African countries. And so as you see rising numbers, I think it'll be interesting to see how that works. That's so, that's so fascinating to, to hear about the treatment facilities. I think that's something that we don't traditionally talk about when we talk about illicit drugs. We talk about drug consumption as much as kind of like the what now. It's so interesting to kind of see who steps up in those areas because, you know, you might think, like you were saying, like you have maybe one or two countries who have government-run programs, but many don't. Um, I think that's going to actually play a really significant role as you know, this, the COVID comes to an end. I know drug consumption in the U.S. and Latin America has gone up considerably. Obviously, that's a little bit harder to gauge the numbers during this time, but that's what the numbers that I've seen. And it's really interesting as well, your, what, the point you brought up with, with, I believe you called it chat. Mm-hmm. It is, has such a similar connotation to what coca uh, growers are going up. In, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, that's the first thing I thought about and, and really kind of how, you know, the cocoa growers, you know, have a long history with growing this and has many medicinal and therapeutic aspects to it. And then really with Plan Colombia and Plan Dignity, which that, which is the one for kind of the similar one from Bolivia, how it's caused a lot of oppression and a lot of fumigation issues that are coming back up again, especially in Colombia. You know, it's really interesting to see how what happens when another country deem something that is indigenous to, you know, the land or the people as illicit and the effects that it will cause because of that. Just all fascinating stuff. And then people... 
who oh. want to learn a little bit more about this, what is a good way to, what are some resources they, they can read or where could they purchase your book? Kind of start learning a little bit more about this. Okay. Yes. I, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I, I always think about the intersections of, of coca consumption and coca farming. And I've actually had some conversations with some of the farmers and, and other people uh, in the region uh, about this too. And, you know, because for one, for one, in one instance, you know, the coca leaf, it helps with altitude sickness, you know, and like Bolivia, you have very high altitude. Exactly. And so, you know, in terms of medicinal a quality, both from people who are both indigenous there or people visiting, you know, because people come and, you know, and they land in Bolivia and some people, you know, just start, well, there's no nice way to say it, sometimes vomiting at the airport because the altitude is so high. You know, it's one of the highest airports in terms of altitude in the world. And so, you know, people need it in some ways to help with those sorts of things. And, and you're right in terms of how things can become criminalized and how it shifts depending on where they are. I want to say much more about what you said, like environmental aspects and all of those things, but I'll stop. So in terms of resources, I, there are a lot of resources. You have, uh, UN has an office on drugs and crime, I think uh, is, is one good place to start. The uh, Chirac Foundation uh, from France did a lot in terms of uh, pharmaceutical trafficking. And of course, the UN's Office on Drugs and Crime does deals more with kind of illicit drugs and the Chirac Foundation, again, pharmaceutical uh, trafficking. There are a number of scholars who's ri- who've written about it, uh, Didier Fassin, myself, other scholars who write about these sorts of things, and events. I think you could, you know, look out for events in wherever you live. If you live in a college town, if you live in a city, often you may see these things at your local college and universities. I know WCAPS is supposed to do something on this, on a topic, a topic of um, kind of illicit trafficking soon. Uh, the UN has events periodically, uh, various NGOs, particularly in DC and, and New York City or, or places where you, you see these sort of things more frequently. So I think those are some ways to start in terms of where my book is. It's everywhere. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it from the publisher, Indiana University Press, Barnes and Noble, and elsewhere. But also, I've written about it both in my book. I devote a whole chapter to pharmaceutical trafficking. But also, I've written some public things, something on Huffington Post. And, and I regularly give lectures at conferences and, and events and that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm always available for those sorts of things. Uh, so I think those are some ways to start. No, thank you for all those resources. I think that is one of those things that it's so sometimes a, a topic is so interesting but it's really hard to know where to start from and when I was doing a, a writing group for the illicit trafficking working group a lot of the women asked me how do you know when to stop researching and I was like mm-hmm. well, you and there's no stopping it's kind of a ongoing process but a lot of times these articles are kind of like dated within that's uh, important to look at also when you're researching when the article was published because obviously things have come after the fact and you can't be afraid of that but i think that's really fascinating to kind of hear you know it's one of those things where i used to work on microtrafficking drugs and hearing more about pharmaceutical drug trafficking is is so important part of the conversation and it's something that we don't talk about enough and i'm so glad that we can have you on and i guess for women who actually want to enter this field do you have any parting words for women of color who are interested in this field or or other folks who listen to the W Cuts podcast who want to learn more about entering this field? 
Yes, I do. I think it's very important to really dive deeply, delve deeply into these issues and attend events, forge peer networks, consult scholars. If you consult scholars or you go to their talks, you write it up in a report, please um, credit them for their expertise. Because this is something that I see, um, particularly when we do panels on, on drugs, we get people, we get people from different, from different government offices and, you know, sometimes people just sit there and just like write everything we're saying, which, you know, it's going into a report, but, you know, credit people for the work that they do and just be open. If you're going out and you're gathering research on these, you know, trafficking, you're having to talk to people who were, you know, involved in these different things in different ways, just be open and direct with your, inter your interactions with locals, particularly when gathering data and being mindful of the impact on individuals, community the state and et cetera. So in terms of my work, in terms of gathering work, both on pharmaceutical trafficking and illicit drug use and trafficking, you know, I talked to a variety of people. So yes, I use the archives for the historical bits and I didn't talk so much about kind of methodology for the other bits, but I interview people. I interview people. I interview people who sell drugs. I interview people who consume drugs. In some cases, I interview people who grow drugs and distribute drugs. I also interview government officials and, you know, law enforcement and just a variety of different people and also use the work of others and talk to other scholars and, you know, engage in different kind of discussion and, and conferences and panels with them. And so it really is kind of a larger collective, but you have to be mindful of how you're interacting with people. One, in terms of being able to get the information, but also how are you using the information? And I know you're using it in different ways depending on what your job, but in terms of my job, Primarily in terms of this, in, in terms of an academic context, you know, I have to be mindful of if a consumer is talking to me, you know, there's, there's risk for them and you're making sure that, you know, that you are able to, you know, be able to, con to use the information in a way that doesn't necessarily, you know, name them unless they want to be named, because sometimes they don't mind being named and that sort of thing. And just, you know, being able to, to maintain some confidentiality uh, and decorum were needed. No, thank you so much for, for all of this. It was so exciting to have this conversation. It's something that I, I hope you can get into a little bit further down the road, but you know, I'll definitely keep, keep asking you to, to share some of your expertise. And if you have any, what I'm going to do is uh, in the notes and the description of this podcast, I'll link to some of your HuffPost articles that you mentioned, and then you can find out, you know, keep, I'm sure you're also on Twitter and all of those things. And you can and keep track of uh, when Dr. Patterson will be speaking again and learn a little bit more about the topic. And so again, thank you so much for your time. It was an interesting conversation and I know we, we could probably speak for much longer. There's so many different links and connections, but thank you so much for this kind of one-on-one -on -one, uh, drug trafficking and pharmaceuticals in West Africa. I think it's, it's a really interesting topic and I hope you can explore more later. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it and I look forward to, to seeing the final product. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone.